Hello and welcome to the Painting Podcast. I'm Jeremiah Polachek, your pilot to become a better painter. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the origins of painting. It's the first part in multiple parts, looking at the complete history of painting. So strap in, and we're going to get right into it. Where else can we start but the Lascaux Caves? Because they have such an interesting story of the present colliding with the past. And this happened back in 1940 when a mechanic went up for a walk in the mountains. He was just off hiking in the mountains. Who knows what he was thinking about? And he fell into a bramble patch somehow, slipped down a rock or something, and he fell into a patch of brambles. And as he was sitting there on the ground, he looked down and he saw a hole. And he looked inside that hole and he realized there's a cave here. And that's how the Lascaux Cave was discovered. Now, like any good discovery, he couldn't, couldn't let it go to waste. So he, before he left, he dropped a rock down into the hole and he heard an echo inside the chamber and that kind of confirmed his suspicions that this indeed was some sort of cave. So a couple of weeks later, he was telling his friends that he discovered this, I don't know, I, I'm not sure what he knew what it was at that point, but he knew there was some sort of cave or opening or whatever you want to call it. And he was talking to his friends about it. And they all got together with a lamp and set off to investigate. When they got to the site, they, they widened the hole that was there previously, dug it out a little bit. And uh, one of them kind of hopped in, the original discoverer of the, uh, the Lascaux Caves. He hopped in first and kind of moved his body because it was extremely tight. You couldn't just walk in. So you'd have to be quite little, even with uh, the excavation that they'd done. And he walked into an expansive room with drawings all over the walls. And he actually looked at some of these drawings and drew them. And isn't that kind of an amazing moment to think about? To, to imagine that tens of thousands of years previously, there were people living there, drawing on the walls, using spit and ochre, these sort of things, to put their own images up on the walls. And then tens of thousands of years later, here comes the mechanic with his little pencil and paper redrawing their drawings. It's as close as I think we could get to some sort of an, an alien visitation in, in real life, in a way where these two worlds are just colliding head on. So they, they discover the cave. They, the other friends, other friends go in too. They're making drawings, like I said, and they decide, you know, they keep it secret for a little bit, but then they decide this is, this is just too cool. And so they talk to who they consider to be the smartest person that they know, which would be their former high school teacher. So they go and tell, they, tell him, 
look, I've, we found this amazing cave with all these drawings on the wall. Uh, why don't you come check it out? And we have to, we have to remember this is also right after the war had ended as well. So there was, there was most likely a, a sense of freedom associated with the culture and being able to go out and wander around and experience nature in that way was probably, you know, an exhilarating thing at the time. And I say this because they, they tell the teacher of their discovery and word of this cave just spreads like wildfire throughout all of France. And within nine days, they find one of the, the most famous French prehistoric uh, experts that there is. And he was in a nearby town, actually, studying. And uh, word gets to him within nine days of him discovering the cave. And he goes there and investigates. And within weeks of the original discovery, uh, we've got teams of people analyzing all the drawings inside of the cave. And uh, we've got books that are being printed about the cave. And there's a lot of intrigue about this cave. And, you know, oftentimes I think when we think of prehistoric art, for whatever reason, uh, even though we found a, a newer, older piece just a couple weeks ago, uh, when we think about prehistoric art, for some reason, we don't think about France necessarily. So I don't know what France's relationship would, would have been with prehistoric art, um, but thinking about the people that lived in the same place that you live currently, and they lived there 26,000 years ago, must be kind of a jolt. Like, are we from these people? These are our indigenous roots, so to speak. You know, throughout all the years, we go through all these different iterations of, you know, political systems and cultural movements and cultural revolutions and all these sort of things happen. But when we get down to it, there's these same people living in that same location that you're living right now. And they lived tens of thousands of years ago, previous to that. So that, that sort of discovery would be kind of a shock, I think, in some ways as well. For them, the French became very tourist-obsessed with the cave. And they started coming into the cave and uh, they built walkways into the cave, and it became a big tourist attraction. Like I said, there was all these articles and books and scholars studying the drawings and all these sort of things. But it, on top of that, it became a tourist attraction where you could just walk into the cave. And um, they, they of course, were, were you know really stupid with how they, they put in some of the, the stairs and stuff like this. They created this big uh, system to move the air in and out of the cave and just the the humans breathing there started a process by which these like crystals started growing on the walls of the cave because the the ecosystem that was that cave was disrupted by all these people walking through it and breathing in it all the time so after about 20 years of having Lasco open they they decided that the the damage from people just breathing and walking was too much 
to the cave and they just closed it. They closed it to the public. There's a door. It's just like a normal metal door. If you uh, walk up to the entrance of the cave, there's still a metal door there and steps going down into it, but that door is locked and closed. Um, but they did make Alaska 2 cave, which was an exact replica of the first cave. So people can still go to Lasco 2 if they want to experience that cave experience uh, that you would have got for around 20 years from 1944 to about 1964. Upon the closing, they were actually successful uh, in treating the, the crystals and the calcite or whatever you call it, the bad stuff that people made grow on the paintings. So they successfully treated all of that, cleaned it up, and uh, restored it, thankfully. So, so let's start thinking about who these people were that actually painted the paintings inside Lascaux Cave. Around 35,000 years ago, the Ice Age would have just been ending, and we'd have Homo sapiens or Cro-Magnon man appearing for the first time in, in this area, in Western Europe. Now, previously in this region, we would have had Neanderthals, and the, the Cro-Magnons or Homo sapiens that were coming into this region replaced Neanderthals that were living there previously. And one thing I think is really interesting about Neanderthals and Homo sapiens is the fact that they actually lived at the same time together. And it's one of my movie pitch ideas that I always uh, give to people if they, they, they afford me the opportunity, is to have a film about Cro-Magnons, Homo sapiens, and uh, Neanderthals all living together at the same time. And there was interspecies love occurring between these, uh, these different species. No, they're not different species. Um, they're like different uh, genuses or something. But anyway, they were all sleeping together. It would be a great movie. And we, we really don't know how Neanderthals uh, went extinct, so to speak. Like what caused them to just vanish? Because they all existed at pretty much the same time. But anyway, when we're talking about the Lascaux Cave, we're talking about Cro-Magnons or humans, and um, we know this because we find remains of Homo sapiens and Cro-Magnons in this area. And one thing worth noting is the fact that they also buried their dead. And burying your dead is, is kind of like a, a dead giveaway that your civilization has a certain understanding of I don't know what we would call the soul or some sort of morality, these sort of things. But they choose to, to actually bury their dead and not just, you know, throw them off a cliff or eat them, you know. So, and interesting enough, uh, Neanderthals did this as well. So, Homo sapiens aren't the only people that bury their dead. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's another animal out there somewhere that buries their dead. I'm, I'm not aware of what it would be. But I mean, can you imagine if like uh, you saw an armadillo and like, you know, one armadillo gets hit by a car 
And then all the armadillos come around the dead armadillo and kind of, you know, move it into the ditch. And one armadillo digs a hole and then they put the armadillo in it and then they cover up the hole. And then another armadillo brings some rocks and puts them in a very specific formation on that grave. We would think differently about killing armadillos if we knew that they looked after their dead in that manner. Right. So when we see Homo sapiens doing it and Cro-Magnons doing it, it indicates that they have a specific view of the world, a certain understanding of the world and probably some sort of ritual or religious aspects to their perception of the world which they live in. And the world that they they did inhabit was was not what we see as France right now. The world that they inhabited, first of all, was really, really cold, <laughs> okay? Um, so the Ice Age is just ending, stuff is melting, and basically you've got some roots, you've got some berries that you can eat, and um, I don't know, maybe some bugs? Probably not a lot of bugs if it's freezing all the time. Pretty much probably just roots and berries is all you got to eat. And then occasionally, if you're lucky, you can kill, you know, an animal, a wild boar, or something like that, maybe. Um, or maybe just a rabbit. I don't know. I'm not sure what they ate. But you'd have to fish. You'd have to find meat. So it's important to think about these things because that's what really keeps you alive. If you've ever been on a trip where you have to hike for a long time and then you have to make a fire, you, you'll know that feeling that comes at when you're, it's the nighttime has fallen and you're maybe a little bit sweaty from walking all day and you plop down and there's somebody working on the fire. I love making the fire, by the way, but somebody's working on the fire and then that you get that warmth and all of a sudden it's just like, oh yeah, this is nice, right? I think there's kind of something triggered in our brains. I don't know what it would be called, the reptile part of our brains or something like that. But there's definitely this fire thing imprinted into our brains where it's like we get around that fire and that moment, I think you'll feel, oh, yeah, fire. Fire's good, right? So these people would think this way about animals too. Imagine somebody coming back with a, a dead elk, you know, a gang of five people coming back pulling and dead elk that must you know we we see naked and afraid right we we watch naked and afraid where somebody has to be uh naked and afraid uh the opposite of clothed and confident like myself but no they have to be naked and afraid and they have to go out and after like day three they're starting to lose their mind because they were eating butter in a bathtub and trying to, you know, getting fattened up for the show. But they start going crazy around day three or so, and they're ready to eat bugs and stuff like that. And no matter what they catch, they can catch like a tiny little lizard, and they, they take that meat off that little lizard, and oh, man, they just love that. It's just like, this is the best thing they've ever eaten. I always laugh with my daughter, because every time they eat something, they they say like, Oh, and then they're like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. So imagine that's that's not 22 days or whatever, 28 days that they got. This is your life. 
So when somebody brings back an elk, that's great. Everybody gets to eat, you know? And so we can think about the power that these animals must occupy in these people's minds. You know, now when we think about lions and tigers and, you know, even like mall ninja samurai types that, you know, are really into lions or something like that, and they want to have the spirit of a lion and they have a big lion tapestry on their wall. And they're thinking of, you know, some anthropomorphization of themselves and that animal in a certain way uh, as being something that's cool, right? Because lions are cool. It's, it's hard to uh, find somebody who doesn't think lions are cool, but there, I'm, what I'm saying is somebody bringing an elk back, there's a different relationship than thinking this animal is really cool, right? So bringing back that elk, that's everything. That's sustenance for, for everybody there. And when we start looking at what they drew on the walls, this all becomes very important. So what did the people living at this time have to eat? What was their elk? Well, thankfully, even though they lived in a frozen tundra, they had wild cows walking around. There's a species of cow called the oryx. And this is a, a wild bull, essentially. It's a, a, a cow. There's bulls with big horns. And uh, then there's, you know, female cows walking around eating God knows what. Uh, probably some little pieces of grass they could find and stuff like that. But they actually had cows walking around. So how lucky was that for them to have these cows walking all over the place? And believe it or not, these cows lived in Europe until the 17th century. You'd still have these cows, these wild cows wandering around. And then there were domestication attempts that happened. And uh, the cows in India, which are called like the Zebu cow, comes from this, uh, this type of wild cow, the oryx. And then even our, you know, what we think of as cows go back to these cows as well. So these people had cows. And so they painted cows. That was their, their favorite thing in the world. You know, uh, one, one person comes back from the hunt or five people come back from the hunt more like it with a cow. What? Probably got to chop it up, put it on the fire at night. Sure. I mean, I bet that guy had no problem, uh, finding, finding a partner to share his, uh, share his blanket, his wild boar blanket that he had in the cave. And these caves, it's, it's also crazy to think about because these caves were occupied for thousands of years. You know, we think about, okay, what happened in the last 500 years? A lot, right? A lot of stuff happened in the last 500 years. But people lived in these caves for thousands of years, and we know this because they actually carbon-dated different bits of wood that they found in the cave that had been uh, used in fires. So they know that they were, you know, cut down at the time and brought into the cave and burned at that time. And uh, it's around 15,000 to 17,000 years ago. And there, there's different um, 
there's different subgroups of like Neanderthals as well, and they're all named after uh, you know the different regions that they came from. But essentially, these people lived around 15,000 to 17,000 years ago, and they occupied that cave for that long. So there's 17,000-year-old wood in that cave, and there is also 15,000-year-old wood in that cave. So from that, we can surmise that they've been there for about 2,000 years. And they've been there for 2,000 years eating cows. They love the cows, right? And so they make the, their, the cave system, basically how it worked is that um, caves are just water, right? They're, they're formed just by water, more or less. So you look at the Grand Canyon and you think, wow, that river did all that. Well, um, just little drainage, drainages of water through limestone throughout thousands and thousands of years you know, creates caves. And a lot of them still have water flowing through them now. And um, so you have, that's how a cave works. And basically, over the years, the, this cave was like flowing with water. It got cut out with all this water. And then at a certain point, it got so much sediment towards the, the exit point, got so much built up sub sediment, it just closed off. And that's how it was saved so perfectly as well because it, it wasn't even open to the outside air. This air was there forever until the mechanic fell down into the bramble patch and, you know, dropped his little rock into the hole that he found. Um, that, that thing was closed, right? So that's why it was saved so well. And when you go inside the uh, the cave complex, it it looks kind of like a, a tributaries, you know, si similar to that, or you know, veins. Of course, everything's linked, right? Um, but you think of it as like tributaries of water, and um, it kind of branches out naturally into these different halls, so to speak, and they actually call them galleries. And one of the first ones that you encounter is this huge drawing and painting of these bulls. And it's actually called the Gallery of the Bulls. And it's like six meters tall by like 20 or 30 meters wide. So they went big right from the get-go, which I think is interesting as well. These weren't made to be little drawings, you know, on a, on a piece of bark that you give to your kid and you're like, hey, oh, check out this drawing I did of buffalo. And the kid's like, oh, I like buffalo. You know, it's not like that. This is a big drawing, and that means this stuff's important. We make stuff big that's important, right? So these were big drawings of bulls, wild, wild bulls, wild cows, basically. There was also some deer as well as wild horses that were drawn as well. But amongst all these different drawings of animals, something else very intriguing was kind of lurking right in plain sight, hiding right in plain sight, lurking right underneath a lot of these drawings, you start seeing these signs. And what I mean by signs, essentially they're, they're dots and straight lines and maybe some squares. And these, now we are beginning to think that these are the origins of writing as well. So when we look at these walls, we can think that not only are we witnessing some of the first drawings ever in the history of the world, 
but we're also realizing that they had a system to communicate. And this is essentially off these graphic uh, icon imageries, circles, squares, dots, these sort of things. And these signs caught the attention of a PhD student named Genevieve von Petzinger. And she was a student at the University of Victoria in Canada, actually, at the time. And she wrote a book on this subject just called The First Signs, based on her research that she did into them. And she discovered that Ice Age Europeans used around 32 distinct types of geometric symbols over the period of 30,000 years. So this is kind of mind-blowing in terms of time and how we think about time again to imagine that perhaps these signs were not just something that sprang up out of nowhere and these people in the cave are like, oh, this, this is this way to make signs. No, this is the first instance that we see of these signs that's left. These signs have existed for tens of thousands of years before them. 30,000 years, they believe, that people were using these same signs to transmit some sort of information. Now, when we, when we think about language now, if I say, I see a cat, we know how to spell, I see a cat, right? And the way we spell it mimics the sounds coming out of our mouth, okay? So when we think about the signs that are present in these cave paintings, underneath these cave paintings that she was studying, and she, she goes much farther uh, in her studies of these markings, and there's, there's actually a really famous deer tooth necklace that was found in France as well. And in that necklace, there was like 63 deer teeth, um, 63 deer, and it's a very specific tooth on the deer. So they know that, you know, this person wearing this necklace must have been important in some way. And so everybody gave their, their teeth to this woman in a way to form this necklace. It wasn't just, you know, one person that collected a lot of deer teeth throughout the years. So it's posited that perhaps she was some sort of a leader in the community, some sort of early royalty maybe perhaps or something like that. But she was given all these different um, deer teeth and all these deer teeth have these little markings on them. They have just little scratches. Some of them are lines. Some of them look more like X's. And basically what von Petzinger discovered was that these same markings used in 20,000 are also being used in 16,000, right? And when we look at the bead market, the people in France didn't have access to this many deer. They simply didn't really hunt deer there. And that gives us the idea that they had to trade them with somebody. So there was some sort of commerce system moving beads and these sort of things even 20,000 years ago. So when we're looking at these teeth and the inscriptions on top of them, we can see these same 
symbols used inside the Lascaux cave, but not only there, they're all over Europe. And so this indicates it's not something that slowly gets more and more complex over time. Like when we look at tools, tools slowly just build upon the knowledge of the previous tool and get smarter and smarter and smarter as time goes by. And all of a sudden we have a computer sitting on a desk, right? Um, that's how tools gradually develop throughout time. And people kind of think that maybe, you know, language kind of developed a similar type of complexity over time as well. So we can start with a simple thing like, you know, cows over there, and later we can write a poem or something like that. So what does this indicate? It indicates that these, these symbols were brought to France, probably from where we came from, from Africa. These were things that were in use in many, many different locations, so it didn't just spring up out of the Lascaux region only. It was used all over the place. So as we begin, begin to get a clearer picture of who these people were, we can see they're a lot more complicated than just the idea of some dumb cavemen living in a cave throughout the year. They have technology, they have the ability to get food all year long, and they also have an early form of writing, religion, spirituality, uh, relationships with one another, certain types of hierarchies where certain people, or maybe not hierarchies, but rather certain people are certainly elevated in the community as being important people within that community itself. And when we start looking at the actual paintings, Let's get back into these actual paintings, how they were made. It, it's really a pretty simple process where you could just essentially grind up some pigment. Usually it's, it's red ochre. That's probably one of the, the oldest pigments that we have. And this, date back, this dates back way farther than, uh, than 20,000 years ago. And essentially all that red ochre is, is clay. And if you burn it, it, you know, some of the moisture and s chemical stuff happens and it becomes redder and redder. So if we look at the, the Blombos cave, for instance, which is a cave outside of uh, Cape Town, South Africa, we can see that the, the floor of the cave itself is covered in red ochre and they smeared it all over everything. Remember that deer necklace we were talking about previously of the woman with the 63 deer teeth necklace uh, with all the signs carved into it? That necklace as well was smeared with red ochre. And these people's bodies were absolutely covered with red ochre. So we, we, can, we can begin to think of, you know, we're, we're, we're humans, and we're walking around, we have this kind of zoological existence where, you know, we're not necessarily feeling like we're in control. We don't have these cows in a field, right? These cows, when I say cows, they're more like oxen, really. 
than a cow because you know these oxen they could have a width of their shoulders that would be two meters. So this was a huge beast. You think you're gonna go up to this beast with a little spear? You made some by some you know rocks you found by the river and tied it with your hair to a, a stick. You think you're going to take down an ox? Probably not. These people tended to, to, to eat reindeer, actually. But anyway, you think about the person in this environment and how they place themselves in this environment. They feel the need, for some reason, we don't know why, they feel the need to cover their skin with paint. And that's really the origin of paint. The origins of paint on everything is paint on our bodies to change the way we look. It's not on the walls. The first place we put paint is on our bodies. So we're changing our appearance. And within these cave paintings as well, we can see these, these giant bulls, you know, squaring off, so to speak. And down in the corner, there are these little human type creatures. We look at the, the bulls and the, the boar. There was just a, another uh, cave in Indonesia with a, a drawing of a boar on the wall that's dated back to around 45,000 years ago. So we're talking twice as old, more than twice as old as the Lascaux Cave in Indonesia now. And we're, we're just going to keep finding these. We're just going to keep finding these. This They found this one in Indonesia like a week ago. And now we're at 45,000 years old. We have a drawing. And they're just going to keep finding these. And it's going to get older and older and older. And they know it's going to get older. But anyway, the, the boar that they found in Indonesia, there's warts drawn on that boar's nose, <laughs> which would be on these like prehistoric boars. They would actually have these little warts on their nose. So they paid very close attention to detail in these drawings of these animals and had, you know, their hair beautifully kind of wisping into the wind. And these bulls look tough and these bison look big and muscular. And um, the the horses are still some of the best, you know, horse paintings that could ever exist in all of time. And then they paint themselves down in the corner and they're just these little stick figure type of things. There's no face. You know, right now we're living in the age of us and our face. It's the selfie age. You know, there's no longer, everybody does a self-portrait. The self-portrait's not just an artist looking at themselves any longer. Everybody takes self-portraits and puts them up for all the public to see now on our public wall, so to speak. But think about how they place themselves in this environment. They don't make themselves big. Like they're in control. No, they make themselves small in the corner and faceless. So if you want to go the ancient aliens route, of course, they're going to be like, I'm sure <laughs> that these things look like aliens. Why don't they have faces? Right. But they chose not to, to care about their own ego in a way that, oh, you know, George has that funny mustache in the winter or whatever. And, and draw that on the picture. No, they just kind of make this really simple circle, stick man, circle for a head, stick man for a body 
to depict themselves in this environment. And that would lead me to believe that obviously they're not the important part of these paintings. These oxen, these horses are the most important thing. And like I said before, these aren't necessarily the animals they would dine on frequently. These would be, you know, the scariest animals there would be out there, really. And um, I think in, in Alaska, to this day, more people are killed by moose in Alaska than by bears. And uh, moose just, you know, they, they're, uh, they're herbivores. They're not like a, a mountain lion in a tree waiting to pounce on you or something like that. And you'd also have to think the you know, the world, they're in, the, in a tundra, you know, so it's, it's a really harsh landscape. But there's also a lot of overgrowth, you know, just absolute wildness. You know, you're not going to, like, we walk, you know, to 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee now. Uh, and that walk might take us 10 minutes to, uh, to walk half a mile or something like that. But back then, you're not just going to go out and just, oh, okay, see you later, and just walk um, walk for <laughs> half a mile. You know, and there's these, even the herbivores are out to get you. They're going to just run you right over. And so those become the focus of all these drawings and these paintings that are on the wall. And like I said, the, the substance that they used to actually create these is this red ochre that we still use all the time. And essentially that's just clay. And, you know, this is just my brain thinking of stuff, but I couldn't help but think about, you know, the way we've discovered eating meat. I've read that most likely, you know, lightning burned down a forest and um, a lot of the animals in the forest just got burned up. And then people would come through and they were like, wow, this burnt deer is pretty good. This tastes better than the the raw deer that, you know, Gorbis was was making last week. Let's just start putting our deer on fire, you know? And in that same respect, I can imagine that if you made a fire on the ground to stay warm uh, and it's clay ground, that clay underneath the fire is going to change a little bit. The color of the ground is going to change. And uh, naturally you can think about just scooping up a little bit of that, slathering it on yourself and, and changing the color of yourself as well. It's almost like an avatar in a way. You know, in this day and age, we often create avatars in video games um, or our cultivate or curate our online personas in some way. But we also have, you know, facial Instagram filters where we can put bunny ears on ourselves and these sort of things. And, you know, they may sound, seem silly, but this aspect of changing the way we look is as old as we are ourselves. Now, it's important to also remember that these paintings, while, while we like to think of a lot of these drawings, maybe in your head you're thinking about somebody that left a stick in the fire and then the end of this stick gets charred and gets black, and then you make a mark with that stick on the wall. And that's a pretty crude way of making a mark. It's a beautiful way to make a mark. We still use charcoal to this day, um, which is made with a little bit of a different process. A binder is added to it uh, to harden it and make it easier to hold and these sort of things. But still, the idea of burning stuff and making a mark 
with that stuff that got burned is still widely used in art to this day. But besides that, when we start getting a little bit deeper into these drawings of all these different creatures, I'm probably not doing justice to the fact that there's cougars, you know, that are engraved into the wall. There's a whole hall just of engravings. It's not like there's just a couple engravings here and there. Like I said, the, the cave complex is divided into these different galleries or rooms of sorts, and one is just full of engravings. And amongst all those engravings, you see cats, and um, like giant cats. There's a bear, a painted bear, and that bear is darker in color. There's a, a bison, and his coat is coming off, which kind of reveals a reddish fur underneath his coat, uh, his coat, which is molting, uh, you know, in the springtime when their their hair falls off, and and so these are paintings where multiple colors are used. A lot of them actually have highlights. They have some way of making a, a type of white to create highlights as well. They they have all sorts of different types of horses. It isn't like they just painted horse and everyone's like, oh, you know, ukak. He makes a good horse. Let's all, you know, make a, a drawing like Ukkak, you know? There's all these different types of horses. There's ponies. There's little horses. There's this, uh, the one of the horses, I can't remember its, its name, but they're just reintroducing it right now in Mongolia as we speak. Uh, some of the other animals are extinct now. So think about that for a second. We have drawings of extinct animals it's a different planet altogether. And one of those animals is absolutely amazing. Google it out if you have a chance to, uh, to check it out more. But it's called the woolly rhinoceros. So it was like a woolly mammoth except a rhinoceros, and it lived in Europe. <laughs> it was like wandering around, this big hairy rhino. Um, so there's, there's drawings of that as well. And you have to remember that these drawings last because the cave is such a special, perfect environment for them to exist. And um, if you if you want to check out a documentary on the subject, I believe it's on Netflix, and it's by Werner Herzog. His film Cave of Forgotten Dreams is is really the most amazing look into not only the caves but the modern day people who are overseeing them and studying them to this day. But they talk about in that documentary that there's paw prints from, you know, like ancient cats. There's, their paw print is still there. And there's bear prints from these ancient bears, which no longer exist. They're, they just walked through one day and there's never been any wind in there. No disruption at all. So that print in the dust has been there for 20,000 years. It's like Neil Armstrong's steps on the moon. They just never went away. They're still as perfect as the day he walked there. So the caves are really just these amazing, perfect time capsules that give us a glimpse into the past. And I always talk about paintings are time capsules in a way. That's one thing I think we love about paintings. They're, they're a physical item 
made by generally one person. We're supposed to know their name in the cave painters. Of course, we don't know their names, but they're, they're an object created by a person that brings together all the elements of their culture into the creation of that one object. And with cave art, with cave paintings, they just lucked out in the fact that they happened to be making paintings in the place that was absolutely perfect for the survival of those paintings. And a lot of preparation went into the creation of these paintings as well. Like I said before, it wasn't just like they were all camped out in the cave and, you know, there's a stick in the fire and somebody's like, oh, I'm going to draw on the wall with this, like do some mindless graffiti on the wall. Because we can actually find remnants of the mortar and pestles that they were using in the cave. And um, they were essentially, you know, a rock that would be kind of hollowed out. Uh, I don't know if that's the mortar or the pestle, but um, it would be, you know, like a little cup of sorts. And uh, it was definitely used for grinding certain minerals or certain um, ochre, you know, is basically just clay, but you got to kind of break it up and make it into a powder in order to use it. Uh, some other types of stones, you could get like a sharp stone and essentially like scrape off dust from it, you know, scrape off a bunch of dust from that rock and collect it into a little pile as well in one of these little cups or these types of containers. Uh, there's a, there's another rock which you could actually sharpen. Uh, it was similar to kind of almost like a graphite uh, that was soft and you could you could actually sharpen the tip of it and get a nice black line with that as well. So there was a lot of different materials that were used and there was a bunch of different techniques too. So a lot of the paintings that we see are monochromatic, so they're just done in one color. But like I was saying earlier, a lot of uh, the other paintings were done with more than one color. And we even have some of the signs that just look like boxes, you know, next to one another. And uh, they're also like their whole palette, so to speak. Uh, they didn't have blue or green. Those would be really highly sought after colors. Of course, we would have lapis lazuli coming from Afghanistan, which would be some of the, the earliest blues that we would get to see. It's Essentially, you got to find the right rock that we can get uh, made into pigment or dust in a way that uh, is manageable. And uh, there wasn't blue and there wasn't green used. It's essentially a, a very brown, you know, a deep brown to a yellow ochre palette if you wanted to be looking at the palette of what the cave painters used. It would essentially be, you know, a value scale from yellow ochre to something like burnt umber, maybe. However, in some places they would actually, you know, there's one bull that they painted red first. So they painted the whole bull red. And then on top of that red, they came with a second layer of dark so that that under layer, under painting kind of shone through the, the top black. And so you get this kind of muddy, rich brown color 
which is really quite amazing. And when you look in and you see a buffalo, you can you can see there is this type of a I don't know what you would call it, a resonating redness from them. And the artists that painted that made that decision that <laughs> I don't know, maybe they stumbled upon it. Uh, maybe they were taught it over years. Who knows? Maybe there was even breakout artists at the time period, and certain people were like, that's not how you draw a buffalo. Look at this guy painting it red first, you know? Um, but somehow that technique developed, as did many other techniques as well. So it's not like I'm saying it's hard to get your wrap your head around completely. But this is an entire culture of painting, and it's one where there isn't any egos involved that we know of. Uh, like today, of course, we have whoever we're talking about, Michelangelo. We know that one person is the person. But with cave paintings, there's no authorship to them, so we, we're, we're not really sure who it was that was painting them. Now, the bigger question then who was painting them, of course, is why was anybody painting them? And of course, there's a lot of different theories as to why people would want to make these paintings. And when we begin to examine these different theories, it automatically becomes a bit of a problem. And it becomes a problem because we can be easily influenced by our own prejudices, uh, prejudices and beliefs. The way we see the world must somehow be related to the way these people saw the world thousands of years ago. So we want to first of all kind of take ourselves out of our current environment and put ourselves into their environment to try and figure out what was going on, why were they making these paintings and drawings. There's, like I said before, there's one gallery which is quite huge, where they must have actually had to have built some sort of a scaffolding to get up into areas of the cave in order to make these engravings. And all these engravings are on top of each other. It's not like there's just a, an engraving of a deer and then they put another engraving of a bear over here. These engravings are all intermingled. It's like when you're making a bunch of gesture drawings um, in a figure drawing class or something, and you don't want to waste paper, so you just draw on top of your drawing again and again and again. There's also this one uh, drawing of what looks to be a female lion, and it's been drawn and redrawn again and again, and we actually see some sort of movement happening in that drawing because there's this head it's almost like an animation the the lion is moving uh in other drawings we we can see the direction and the size of the figure and certain animals have been clumped together um according to where they would live and what other animals they would associate themselves with you know it's kind of funny to think but a lot of animals have, you know, we, we look at animals now and we see a squirrel and we're like, oh, isn't that squirrel cute? It's great. I'd love to have a pet squirrel like Bob Ross has, right? Um, 
However, we can't, we don't generally get our heads around the fact that we are part of this in this animal world as well. But also that there's an entire system that, you know, the bears are going to maybe live in caves and the horses can kind of live in all these different type of environments. They can acclimate to all these different type of environments. So all these, all these different animals have their different homes. So there's some, some theories that, you know, they, they looked at this in a very uh, pragmatic sort of way. And they thought, oh, these are the animals that kind of live together here. We're going to draw them together. And we're going to draw these other animals over here together. Now, there's another theory, and this is coming from uh, actual scientists, trust me, um, but that a lot of these drawings are related to ritualistic trance dancing, and these would be dances where you uh, probably repeat some sort of phrase or something like that, and you move an emotion again and again and again until your body is put into a trance. Of course, one of the earliest altered states that everybody experiences, that's pretty much universal all around the world, is when we see that three-year-old in the living room spinning around in circles and then stopping and looking down at his feet and seeing the entire world continue to move. These types of altered states were used in trance experiences. Now, there's a cave in California. It's called the Pinwheel Cave, if you want to look more into it. And within this cave, this is way, uh, you know, we're going to 1600 now. So this is 20,000 years after Lascaux just to be clear about that. But we, we look at this cave and we see clearly psychedelic imagery. We know that these people have taken datura, which is a type of flower that's really common. Uh, it's a really pretty white flower, actually. And the, the seeds of this flower often have psychedelic properties. You can grind them up and eat them. They're poisonous in high doses. They're However, they do create a psychedelic state that is, once again, fairly universal in the fact that things begin to radiate when you're on in, these, in these states. So the spiral, they, they call this the pinwheel cave because there's this kind of spiral datura flower that has been painted on the wall. And within that cave, they found all these different like wads of plant matter. And they thought, you know, maybe people were just like literally eating stuff and, um, you know, jamming their, you know, basically their unused gum, putting their unused gum on the underside of the table. But essentially they thought, oh, these people were, were chewing on something to get some nutrients, maybe some roots of some sort or something like that. And then they were just spitting it out and jamming it into these uh, crevices. So they, they took some of this plant matter and they took some DNA from it because they wanted to find out, you know, maybe we'll get some cool DNA evidence. And they found out that the plants that were, you know, jammed into all these crevices were indeed um, datura, which means they were using that cave 
in a ritualistic manner in conjunction with some sort of religion, more likely than not, and one which involved hallucinations and um, perhaps a coming-of-age ritual. Who knows? Uh, Another theory is that some of these images of animals with the dots and things fading in and out could be the results of some sort of sensory deprivation as well, which is totally possible. We still see this today. If you don't sleep for two or three days, you'll go into a psychedelic state. And when we start thinking about early humans and what really was this jump towards religion and spirituality and all these sorts of things, we know that drugs are part of that story too. We also know that these caves are used for ritualistic purposes. Some of the bison on the wall, it appears that there's chips out of them. And some people believe that perhaps people were literally throwing spears at the wall in some sort of, you know, perhaps getting ready for a big hunt the next day. Um, or it could be part of a, some sort of monomyth, you know, conquering ritualistic aspect of going into a hallucinogenic state and having to, you know, slay the beast, so to speak. So there's a lot of different theories on why they painted them. We, we can certainly try to figure it out. If we still, you know, when you look at the psychedelic imagery of the 1960s with radiating patterns off of uh, animals and these sort of things, and of course the spiral as well, we can see that our perception is altered in a very specific manner that is also depicted in a lot of these cave cave paintings as well. And of course, in these caves, uh, there is one scene of a man who seemingly has a head of a bird. And he's next to a bison. And a lot of these bison, you know, they have what appear to be, you know, something sticking out of them, or there's like a stick coming into them. There's a lot of arrows all around. But think about why would you want There's so little humans in this environment. And when you do paint a human, when you do paint the artist at that time, the human at that time who is supposedly creating these paintings, you do so and make him have a bird head. So we don't know the answer to these questions. Like I said, we can only, you know, guess, hypothesize about why they may be. And really, this investigation goes to the core of who we are to this day and how we try to figure out this world that we're in. And that really is the story of painting throughout all of the years. So I invite you to subscribe, follow me, do all that sort of stuff. So we can continue this journey together, looking at paint through the ages and discovering how it also shows us who we are as well. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremiah Polachek. Please, if you can, support this podcast 
by going to the Patreon page. Really helps me out a lot to be able to continue to make these things for y'all. Hop on over to Painting Course on YouTube. Follow me there. Or Painting Course on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your uh, podcasts these days. And of course, check out Oko.academy, which is my new artist mentorship program where I'm linking artists with mentors. And we're trying to create a system that kind of uh, inverts the current model of taking courses online. Instead of being in a class with 100 people in the class doing videos, uh, watching videos and doing assignments nobody ever sees, you'll be working one-on-one with an artist mentor. And I'm one of those artists. So head on over to oko.academy to learn more about that and also learn about how you can apply to study once all this blows over and we return to normal, hopefully, at my art school in Prague, Czech Republic. I have a physical location as well where I'm taking one-on-one individual artist mentors, mentees as well. So head on over to oko.academy if you want to learn more about that. Until next time, ciao.